0: Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions you may have about your meditation practice, about mindfulness meditation in general and the Buddhist teaching, and how to apply it in your life.
1: So it's kind of like a choose-your-own-dhamma. You tell me what to talk about what you need to know i can't read all your mind so you have to tell me what you need to know tell me your problems so
0: we spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation it's just an opportunity to quiet the mind and prepare the mind Cultivate wholesomeness in preparation for appreciating the Dhamma. And it also, of course, gives an opportunity for people to post their questions. If there are no questions, there'll be no session. So if you want to hear the Dhamma, you'll have to ask the questions. And they better be questions that are important to you, not just curiosity or intellectual philosophical questions.
1: If there's anything, if you're here, then
0: what's the reason that you're here? What do you need? Let us know. And after 15 minutes, I'll come back and I will begin to answer whatever questions there may be, if there are any.
1: So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
0: all right we're back that's 15 minutes so from here on we'll ask that the chat be reserved for only questions if you've asked your questions already then just close your eyes stay mindful stay present
2: thank you Bunte. we do have questions What are the ways to be rooted in the present moment apart from verbalizing mentally?
0: That's not a very fair question. I mean, you're basically asking for advice on how to practice besides the advice that I would give you. It's Like if you go to a doctor and uh, they say, "Here I have this medicine that cures all illnesses and then they say, "Oh, what other medicine cures all illnesses well, I have this medicine for you what do you what are you looking for being uh, being rooted in the present moment is uh, it's not the not the end goal. I mean, it's a a question of whether you actually understand what you're asking. First of all, verbalizing mentally is such an unfortunate way of describing what we do. I mean, it's unfortunate how poorly understood or recognized the practice uh, that we teach is in terms of being, in terms of how mainstream it actually is, how how normal it is for meditation to be a verbalization mentally it's called a mantra meditation has always been some form of recitation as a reminder the the core of most meditations is this word sati which means to remember and so the idea behind that is that you remind yourself and that reminding keeps the mind remembering something not remembering the way we normally use the word in english but keeping the mind on the thing or Uh, remembering it in terms of uh, having a clarity about it that is free from any baggage like no judgment or reaction or distraction and when you're really clearly uh, focused on the object and you grasp it as it is that's that means you remember it so the practice to do that of course has always been a mantra. You use a word, the name for that object, whether it be a conceptual object like Buddha or or a light or a candle flame. The mantra is a means of focusing your attention on the object. So, apart from that, I mean, what meditation is there? There's this sort of nebulous idea people have that I'll just practice being rooted in the present moment. I mean, what does that even mean? Is that even really the goal? The goal is to see clearly. And one of the important aspects of seeing clearly is how uh, unstable and momentary reality is. There is no present moment to be rooted in. Present moment is a moment, right? If you're rooted in it, oh, it's gone already. What what does it mean you are rooted in it? It's not a terrible saying. I mean, it it works. It's just you have to understand deeper than that than the saying uh, explicitly states. You have to be rooted every moment. And that means your, your moments have to be uh, very powerful and, and, then, and, and also very flexible because the next moment it's gone. And so if you're not ready to catch the next moment, then you're never going to be rooted in anything. You're going to be rooted in the past. That's what usually happens. When you're rooted in the present, the present becomes the past and suddenly you're lost in the past. That's why you're not very well rooted at all uh the, the, it's much more important to be uh, flexible and to be able to keep up with the present moments as they come one after another. And my mantra, no matter what type of meditation you're practicing, is just the best way to do that. This aversion to noting, people call it noting, i mean, it's basically an aversion to mantra meditation, which isn't going to really get you far because of how mainstream, normal, and powerful practical and useful mantra meditation is and of all kinds so i don't have any answers for you i mean maybe you haven't read our booklet and you don't realize that that's what i teach but i'm not going to give you any other advice that would that would be a disservice in my opinion
2: when i meditate i will notice that i'm distracted by thought and i note that was a thought about the past or future but I'm struggling to return to and sit with just sensation without words. Do you have any advice?
0: Again, without words, I don't understand this aversion to, I mean, it's not so uncommon, we do get this, but now we have here two in a row. Um. Yeah, thoughts are, you, you should, the Buddha said you should not delve into the details or the particulars or the, the, um, characteristics of experience so thought is not thought about the past thought is just thought and you would just say thinking now without words isn't going to be again just going back to my last answer it's not the best advice so this aversion towards using a mantra is unfortunate and i would ask you to reconsider one one note to make is that it's going to be challenging Meditation isn't meant to be comfortable. Not, not mindfulness meditation, anyway. So if you used a mantra focused on a conceptual object, it would be much more comfortable. But it wouldn't be as uh, life-changing. I mean, the whole idea is to take you out of your comfort zone. So the reason for aversion is often the results. The results are uncomfortable. That's by design. It's, it's supposed to make you let go, make you see how, well, reality is uncomfortable in the sense that um, any clinging that you do to it is going to cause suffering and and the problem is that we cling to everything we like to cling and so we're always uncomfortable with the reality we're always trying to live in conceptual thought because it's much more comfortable so the struggling to return to sit, i mean i I don't have much advice for you except maybe reconsider and read our booklet if you can uh, maybe do our at home course if you're interested but without words isn't isn't at all the goal the goal is to use words as a reminder there's a very there's a great power to a mantra
2: can mindfulness aid in understanding other people's hidden motives when communicating with them and help one become less naive or childlike
0: No, no, not your, their hidden motives I mean it can help it can help to see what they're projecting um, but it's not easy or can be downright impossible to tell a person's motives at first blush Over time it gets a lot gets easier A person who's mindful can gradually come to notice the various external signs the qualities that hint at greed anger and delusion and and mischief and malevolence and that sort of thing but uh, i mean to some extent mindfulness makes you more childlike less concerned about people's hidden motives less swayed by them as well less swayed by people's uh, manipulations you bend but don't break so you're you're not concerned if people cheat you out of money for example but no one could ever manipulate you into getting upset or doing something wrong lying manipulate you into lying or cheating or killing or stealing or that sort of thing but in terms of taking away your money or your possessions, then there's not really a concern for that.
2: Is the mindful moment I obtain forcefully different from the mindful moment I obtain naturally? Is it correct that meditating correctly creates merits?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I don't quite understand this phraseology. We don't practice to obtain mindfulness forcefully, but you'd have to be enlightened to consistently obtain mindful moments naturally. So maybe forcefully is okay. I mean, it's not the word I would use, but artificially, let's say. Artificially is like the Buddha talked about a an elephant stuck in the mud. If an elephant is stuck in the mud, well, you need a, a a rope. The elephant can't just get out by itself. I mean, stuck in a tar pit, let's say, not mud, but a tar pit. And it's slowly sinking. It can't get out by itself. A human being can't get out of samsara by themselves. The only one who can do that is a Buddha or a pachekabuddha. Buddha. A very, very rare occurrence. Like like very, like that. that's understating it, very rare. Is, I don't have words to express how rare how obs- obscenely rare it is to for that to happen so otherwise you need something artificial. I mean I guess you could say even a Buddha and a pacheka Buddha have to artificially change they have to do something almost forceful but let's say deliberate is a much better word forceful isn't a good word because if anything if you do anything forceful you ruin it like Lao Tzu talks about the fish he says uh, when you fry a fish you can't keep poking it or or you'll ruin it you have to you have to be deliberate for sure and and careful and vigilant but you can't be forceful that's not how reality works reality works uh, based on moments and decisions and not not even so much decisions but um well, decisions, but decisions that are based on the crucial aspect. is not the decision even. The crucial aspect is the awareness, How, the perception. How do you perceive something? Do you perceive it as good? Do you perceive it as bad? Or do you perceive it without judgment, without uh, partiality? And that's what we, uh, we strive towards. We remind ourselves, hey, this is seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. And when we do that, then that changes our perception, and so our decisions change as a result. So that that's the first part, I guess, addressing it. I mean, I didn't really answer it, but I just would word it differently and explain it differently. Is it correct that meditating correctly creates merits? Uh, well, merits aren't things. I mean, a merit isn't something that you can create. Um, you perform wholesome karma which is often translated as merit but punya doesn't really mean merit it means goodness merit is an old an old-fashioned translation of this word punya which really just means goodness i mean there's not i don't think there's a better translation than just goodness so the, the performance of mindfulness is goodness and that has ripple effects internally psychologically it also has ripple effects in your life and the world around you because of the decisions you make because of your your personality changes and that sort of thing there's just so many benefits to it that are all good So goodness leads to happiness
2: i sometimes feel very low energy to the point where i can't move and sometimes can't get out of bed. I meditate and try to be mindful most of the day, but nothing seems to help. Any advice?
0: Well, the the body and the mind go in cycles, so you have to adapt. It it can often take um, time uh, to to improve yourself as an individual. That's kind of the thing with meditation. They're, 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 the only factor is the intensity, how, how intensive, it, or the intensivity of your practice. Are you practicing constantly? Then you'll improve quicker. But uh, if you're not practicing intensively, it just takes a lot of time. And eventually you start to become more familiar if you apply mindfulness, as you say. You'll become more familiar, less caught off guard, and more uh, able to work around these feelings of low energy. It can take lifetimes if you're not practicing intensively, which is why we recommend, of course, at least to start, that you find a way to do an intensive course at a meditation center. The way it works in our tradition, we, we... we almost require, though not require, we strongly recommend for people to do the at-home course first, to learn the technique and to become confident and comfortable with it. And then after that, absolutely to gain a solid foundation, should, uh, they, everyone should find a way to do an intensive course for a couple of weeks at our center at least. So nothing seems to help. It's usually ex unrealistic expectations that somehow something is going to magically turn off the low energy and that's not going to happen. It's just going to to be potentially years of you trying and and improving as an individual and years is is only because of if you are doing uh, only a little bit of meditation a day and the more you do the the quicker it will come. Um, i mean there's lots of things that can aid in that like a tragedy a tragedy can really kick your butt and make you say oh yeah now i better practice one big reason for laziness is when we're complacent when things are going too well and we don't have suffering but that's just a flaw of character most of us are are deeply deeply flawed and so we're unable to appreciate the danger that's right in front of us we're all going to get old sick and die calamity is is just a roll of the dice away so many people meet with calamity every day we're just lucky that it hasn't happened to us and and it's only when it does that hopefully we start to realize oh yeah this is why i should train my mind this is why i should not be caught off guard i should be prepared for this but it's very easy to become complacent and there's nothing to do about that except become a better person and that can take lifetimes it may be I mean, it will be that many people who hear about the Buddha's teaching will not become close to becoming enlightened, not in this life. They're just hopefully going to gain something from it, and maybe in the next life they'll they'll go further. And some of the people will go on and on, and and eventually get to the point where they say, "Oh yeah, there really is something I've been missing here. How 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 prone to suffering we are." and how prone to forgetfulness we are lifetime after lifetime forgetting the sorrow and, and suffering of the past life and going on to create a new life and doing it again and again and again hopefully eventually the goodness and the clarity will wake the, the being up and then they'll be able to commit themselves to the practice of mindfulness now you coming to this um this session is a sign not I'm saying there's anything special about this session but it is about the Buddhist teaching so it's a sign you have interest in the Buddhist teaching which makes you a special person already that's great but you have low energy maybe a little complacency I don't know and all of those are just going to be character flaws um, so it's up to you whether you have the 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 goodness of mind the presence of mind to realize that and to do something about it or whether you just say mm, I'm okay uh, everything's good the way it is and Ignoring the fact that you're getting old, sick, and die, and you're getting old and closer to sickness and death, and potential calamity, around, calamity around every turn.
2: By the same way that I put my attention in the movement of the stomach, while saying mentally rising, falling. When I feel fear, I will say fear, fear mentally but should i put my attention in the whole body not on the stomach
0: no this is a question that we get repeatedly it's a good question but um fear is mental so there is nothing to do with the body there is no place in the body you should put your mind you don't really put your mind in the stomach anyway the point is you would only say rising after your mind has been put in the stomach so you don't um you don't put your mind as you say it you say it as a result of putting the mind of of having the mind aware of the rising so the whole point of that is not to just say rising falling mindlessly in your head like rising falling with nothing to do with the stomach you should actually be aware of the rising which is basically putting the mind there now for fear fear is a mental thing so when you're aware that your fear had nothing to do with the body it was mental and after you're aware of the fear same way you just say afraid
2: Can you explain the mental narrator of physical and mental actions? It can sometimes feel very claustrophobic and schizophrenic when the actions I complete
0: are narrated and judged upon in this mind. Oh, it's just thoughts. I mean, this is the extrapolation, the fomentation that goes on in the mind. We make more out of things than they actually are. We are unmindful, or we, we have a f- sort of Forgetfulness. I mean, in English, we don't say it like that. Again, we, we'd say more like um, a distracted mind or a diffuse mind, a mind that is um, unstable. And I don't mean unstable in, in the psychiatric way or something. Unstable means the mind is not uh, rock solid, focused, and fixed on the object. It makes it it gets uh, swept away into. Discursive thought, judgment, extrapolation, analysis, that sort of thing. So, when you do something and then you judge it, that's the bad habit of reacting to an experience with judgment, with likes or dislikes or uh, ego and that sort of thing, conceit, feeling good about what you did, feeling bad about what you did. All of that is wrong reaction. Now, mindfulness is the right reaction. It's a much better, much more powerful and wholesome and clear reaction when you say to yourself when you walk you say walking walking there's no room for reaction walking is just walking when you feel pain and you say pain pain it's just a different reaction with there's no judgment involved pain is just pain seeing is just seeing
2: when you have reached the root of just being what does it then mean that the subject awakens to
0: itself none of those words mean anything to me really the root of just being i don't i don't know i mean i guess okay that's not so bad the, i don't know how i understand about the root of it but um, I guess poetically or, or figuratively, I can understand the idea of just being. I mean, the idea in our tradition would be to have no reaction. We were studying the Chulasunyata Sutta, which is interesting, kind of gets into this idea a bit, talking about how the you get to this state where, you know, like seeing is just seeing kind of thing, where there's only the senses and the five aggregates, there is no judgment or reaction that you could say is just being but it's not the way i would i mean just being yeah, it's not so bad um but the next part the subject awakens to itself is not a buddhist phrase that's just what does it mean it means you have it means you're you're studying the wrong religion i mean where you got that from is it's not from buddhism it's not a buddhist thing Subjects don't, there's no such thing as a subject, and awakening to the self is not a Buddhist concept. In Buddhism, we talk about awakening to the truth, which is very different from awakening to oneself or itself. You awaken to the truth means just realizing the truth. I mean, it's just a poetic way of saying you realize. It's not whatever you're talking about here. You say, oh, yes, impermanent, suffering, non-self, that's the truth. That's what you see. That's awakening.
2: Is there a connection between meditation and loss of memories? I have noticed both loss of memory and planning and picturing the future.
0: Well, you can't lose memories. Memories are always something you can potentially access uh, with work if you if you cultivate, develop your mind in the right way. Thing is, that mindfulness makes you sometimes less inclined to think about the past. And so, without really exercising that, you're potentially going to just lose track of past memories. That being said, uh, the clarity from mindfulness has a very profound impact, or can have a profound impact, on facilitating the ability to remember things. So, That's more long-term. I mean, you talk about what you have noticed. Now the question is, how much meditation are you doing? Are you practicing intensively? If you are, you shouldn't be on the internet, but uh, most likely you're not. And for people who aren't, you can't say too much about what meditation is doing for you. It will be very slight and gradual until you undertake to do intensive practice. How do I stop stress eating? Well, the attitude for these sorts of things uh, is to... It should not be to stop. You should not be focused on stopping. You should be focused on... I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a good abstract goal. That's okay, that's fine, don't worry about it. But your focus should not be on that because when our focus is on that, we're constantly disappointed when we can't stop, because you can't stop. That's not how reality works. Reality isn't about starting and stopping. Reality is about habits, which are based on moments of decision, which are based on perceptions. So you should change your perceptions. Cultivate perceptions around eating that and around stress. Those two things, those are your two keys here try to understand eating, which seems kind of silly, and try to understand stress, which maybe seems a little bit um, overly obvious. Like you think, well, yeah, I mean, I I understand stress. It's stressful. And eating, what's there to understand about eating? But the truth is neither of those is true. If you understood stress and if you understood eating, neither of these, you, you wouldn't be stressful and you wouldn't be stress eating. Having a greater clarity around these two things through mindfulness will make it stop, will, will, will eliminate stress eating. I mean, it takes work. I have no magic pill for you. This isn't something where I can say, okay, go sit for a half an hour and you're cured, or even go and sit for a half an hour a day. That sort of cure is going to take maybe lifetimes, if not like years at least, if not lifetimes but uh how do you how do you stop i mean the simple answer to your question read our booklet do our at-home meditation course and then come and do a foundation course at our center if you do those things which admittedly are not uh not easy and for many people are often for many people are perhaps impossible but start step one reading a book i assume you can do that if you can type you can read Uh, do our at-home course that's not a hard thing to do either And then we'll talk, see if you can then maybe come and do a course. That's my advice. If you, you want the answer to your question, do that. And I can pretty much guarantee you'll, well, maybe not stop stress eating, but it won't be an issue in the way it, like it won't be really stress eating. It just might be, yeah, you might eat a little more when you're stressed, but it will be much, much, much easier to deal with. Even if you just do just those things that I just mentioned.
2: Is there a reliable way to determine what will lead to true liberation beyond short-term personal preference? How can one know what interpretations to trust, given we all start at ignorance?
0: Yeah, well, this is the subject of the Kalama Sutta. There are many different paths and many different teachers. And the core has to start with the three roots of all evil greed anger and delusion and so you have to start by focusing on these three I, mean, I guess that doesn't really answer your question because in the context of buddhism there's mostly a focus on that so but but start there and start to appreciate that simply calming the mind isn't going to address these issues especially delusion you have to gain clarity. Seeing clearly is most important. And that's so, so the addition, I would say, to the Kalama Sutta, talking about the three characteristics is the, uh, or sorry, the three roots is the three characteristics. So talking about impermanence, suffering, and non-self. If you can start to understand these things, start to, not intellectually, but start to see that the things that you're clinging to are not worth clinging to. That's how you really um, understand that you're on the right path. Not because you like the practice, but because it's leading you to let go of things you used to cling to. Because what leads to that is the three characteristics. Seeing that the things you thought were stable are not stable. Seeing that the things that you thought were satisfying are not satisfying. And seeing that the things that you thought were controllable are not controllable. The things you thought were me and mine are not me and mine. Not all practices do that, and it's, uh, it can be deceptive when the practice is something you prefer personally. I like this practice. It's comfortable. It's working for me. Is it helping you to see the three characteristics? Don't kid yourself. Many meditations are just calming and peaceful, and if you're not seeing the three characteristics, you're not liberating yourself. I think that's a pretty good guide. Those those basics are the basic fundamentals.
2: Is there a concept of recklessness in the first precept? I go for a long, mindful walk every day, knowing that there is a chance I might step on small ants and bugs by accident.
0: So the precepts require uh, in- intention, or they require... Uh, a a mental inclination. So you have to be intending or, or inclined to kill. Not inclined is not the right word. Intending, I guess, is the best word. You have to intend to kill. If you don't intend to kill, you can't kill. It's not possible. Stepping on an ant isn't killing, it's just death. Intending to step on an ant leads to killing. Can lead to killing. Stepping on an ant because of the intention to kill the ant is killing. As long as the ant was alive before you killed it.
2: Is reflection useful in meditation for professional growth? Is there any art of reflection?
0: Well, it's not useful in meditation. It can be useful for professional growth. Um, But honestly, I I think you'll find that mindfulness just makes your mind work better. You don't need to deliberately reflect on things. The reflections will occur. You'll work things out about your work much better. Uh, You'll have less need for planning or, or obsessing about the future or the past. You'll just work better and you'll, you'll you'll change as well your your ambitions will fade away and you'll just be more inclined to live a simple life but um, everything will get better mindfulness is does nothing bad everything is everything gets better through mindfulness but uh, but yeah no not really any need to cultivate that just cultivate the base of mindfulness it will make everything better the medicine that cures all.
2: Every time I use a mantra to focus on an object, my focus goes on the mantra itself, not on the object, but on me saying the mantra in my head. And it's very difficult to focus on the object.
0: Do you have any advice? That is, I think, a common reason why people are averse to mantra meditation Uh, I appreciate that you're now using the word. This is a good sign that people have started to use this word. I've been criticized for this because in the Mahasi tradition, they don't use the word mantra. But I think they also didn't deal with such backlash. Um, They did as well, but also they weren't using English for the most part. But um, it... it, um, yeah. Anyway, the 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 use of the, it is mantra meditation. It's a I, I believe that's what we're talking about, and that's what we're practicing. That we're saying the same thing. So this is a common problem that people have. Um, that it's unfamiliar. I mean, what you're dealing with is not a sign that. There's something wrong with the practice, and as people will often say, it's not. A, it, it's not what people will often say. It's a sign that the practice uh, isn't right for me. Uh, that sort of thing. It's just a sign that it's unfamiliar. It's like learning how to golf. I mean, when I was young, I learned how to golf, a tennis as well. These two things uh, really struck me as. I mean, they're un, They're unnatural. Why are they unnatural? Not because there's there's something perverse right there's nothing perverted about hitting a golf ball except for how silly it is but it's not perverse or or perverted right but it's unnatural in the sense that i don't know how to do this my body doesn't know how to do this um learning uh, i don't know complex algebra or calculus when i studied calculus in university when i was young i mean your mind doesn't work that way but you teach it how to work that way and you you uh, you change it's unnatural. that's a common criticism people have oh this this is unnatural. well what do you expect? You just want to go with what's natural and you just live your life naturally greedy, naturally angry, naturally deluded. You need something unnatural to change. that's what training is um like doing push-ups is unnatural doing Doing karate, when I studied karate when I was young, it was unnatural at first, but eventually it becomes very natural. So, so that's not quite literally what you're talking about, but it's the same idea. It's hard because it's new, and you're doing it all wrong because you don't know how to do it. So you try to hit the golf ball, and you just don't hit the golf ball. You try to swing the tennis racket, and you just hit the ball into the net or whatever, or don't even hit the ball at all, or, or hit yourself or something. Right, you do it all wrong, but eventually you get better at it. So, the the that's just sort of the background to try and reassure you that there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing unexpected. This is just beginner stuff. The advice is is quite simple and and it, it's not unfixable. The the the, the uh, advice would be: what happens is then you try to focus on, just to repeat what you're saying, you try to focus on, say, the stomach, and your mind focuses on a sound in the head, or sometimes even people will see the word in their head, or that sort of thing. Well, that there is an experience. It's showing you three things. It's showing you uncertainty, because you don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes it goes to the stomach, sometimes it doesn't. It's showing you suffering. Because you're frustrated, because you ex- have expectations and desires and they're not being fulfilled. And it's showing you non self, most important, I mean, most obviously, most glaringly. I don't want it to go to my head. Why isn't it doing what I want, me to, want it to do? You're learning something very important about your mind. It's not your mind. Your mind isn't you, it isn't under your control. Why isn't it working? Why isn't my mind doing what I say? Because it's non self. These are important lessons. So, what you do is you change your attitude. Instead of saying, work, darn, gosh darn it, hit, work, won't you? You, you say, well, you, you, you change your perspective to be flexible, to keep up. Your mind has instead gone to this new object, which is a sound or a, a sight, a vision of the, the word, or even just a thought of the word, and you're focused on that thought. Those are all perfectly valid objects, and if if you train yourself to, say, for example, seeing or hearing or thinking in that instance, you'll change your attitude. Instead of trying to control the mind to try and keep up with it and to not let it get out of your uh, your your vision, you know, so that you're you're present at all times, your mind becomes so much becomes you know by orders of magnitude more. Uh, pliant more peaceful more orderly and you'll find it eventually becomes very simple for the mind to focus on say the stomach or or on anything really so so long long answer short in in summary you're just dealing with beginner stuff and it's not a insurmountable hurdle it just means this is a prime example of how mindfulness requires you to change your attitude Instead of saying, why won't you do what I want, focus on what's happening. When you try to send your mind to the stomach, that's the whole point of sending your mind to the stomach, is to see what goes wrong, to see what, what you don't know about reality, to show you how your expectations are often unrealistic, and how, how expectations in general are an are a obstacle, a hindrance. And you become so. As a result, with this very, very simple and and trivial example, you, you it, it snowballs into your whole attitude. Just focusing on this one thing, where why can't I focus on the stomach when I say the mantra? To being more uh, laid back, more independent, more un, um, uh, more free from expectation and more free from dependency on reality. So no matter what things are, you're, you're okay with it. Because you've, you've, been, you've been beaten by the, the uh, lack of control. You get beaten into submission where you just give up. And when you give up, you let go. You stop trying to control reality. You stop trying to make things happen. And you just go with it. You keep
2: up with it. When I meditate, I often get curious about who or what is directing my attention. This can sometimes cause disturbance, as if I don't know myself on a fundamental level. Is
0: this seeing non-self? I mean, and there's, there's always going to be. And non-self is just like seeing the stripes on a tiger. You don't have to go looking for it. You're always going to see non-self when you're mindful. It's just a matter of being mindful. So here's an example. You get curious. Well, that's not being mindful, so you should be mindful of that. When you're curious, you can say curious. Wondering, for example. Wondering or thinking. If there's a disturbance, you would note the disturbance. I don't know what you mean. Perhaps you know distraction or worry. You have to, you have to pin down what you mean by disturbance there. You know, doubt, maybe. Confusion. Those are all just experiences. So, no, I don't think you're understanding non-self by by that question. Um, though there is non-self always involved. Non-self is just that you can't uh, control these things. You can't control the curiosity. So, seeing non-self would be seeing that the curious is not you. It's not you getting curious. If you could see that, oh, that would be that would be non-self when you realize, oh, this curiosity just is incessant and it's not happening because I wanted to, it just keeps coming back again and again. When you get to that point, then you're seeing non-self.
2: Sometimes when the feeling is intense, I look at myself in third person and the feeling as a separate entity, which then brings some clarity. Are these and other skill uh, techniques skillful with noting practice
0: no not really there's no i mean there's no benefit to that so um, trying to uh, doing something that for the purpose of bringing something else is usually a bad idea i mean this is the control because it works sometimes and it seems to work and it gives us the false sense of control but control isn't what we're looking for When the feeling is intense literally you should focus on the feeling and say feeling or i don't understand what you mean by feeling but probably be a little more specific than that if it's a pain or if it's an emotion you should note the specific emotion like angry or liking or whatever the depression whatever the feeling might be if it's just a sensation you can just note feeling feeling if it's just a physical tension or something you can also note tense tense but Sometimes you're just not feeling, feeling. And then you'd also note if you like it or you dislike it or that sort of thing. But doing anything you do, no matter, I'm not even you know going into the details of what you did. Like I look at myself, that's something you did. Don't do that. That's not the practice. Just look at the feeling. Don't look at myself. Look at the feeling. And the feeling as a separate entity. I mean, kind of, but you don't have to get into it like that. The, you'll see that, I mean, feeling is a separate entity. It's an entity that arises and ceases. So that's enough. You don't have to get into some framework of myself, third person, separate entity. Feeling is just feeling. That's enough. The hardest part of mindfulness is to stop complicating it. You see, all the, a lot of this that these questions people ask are just complicating things. big part of it is the struggle to stop trying to complicate it like it's it's core it's really the core of mindfulness is reducing it to seeing is just seeing it sounds so silly and kind of kind of basic like okay if that's the first thing i do what's the next thing i do but it's actually the last thing you do because when you get to the point where seeing is just seeing then there's no self there's no me there's no mind there's no problem
2: When I note my fear and say to myself fear fear how does it help that the fear goes away isn't it much more helpful if I analyze the fear and try to change a belief
0: um no it's not um i mean it helps that the fear goes away because in the long term you're going to see not that the fear goes away but that the fear is unmanageable and not just unmanageable but the, but that the, that the fear is a, a, a an ordinary reality i mean a a, a meaningless reality that's the, that's the point is that there's nothing meaningful about fear so helpful for what if you analyze the fear and try to change a belief helpful to do what all we're trying to do is um see fear and by extension the thing that you're afraid of for what it is and that's what mindfulness does the the fact that it goes away is a part of that but it's the part that says everything disappears Because when you see that everything disappears, then fear no longer scares you, neither do the things that you're afraid of. Because the things that you're afraid of are not actually things, they're just moments of experience that also go away. So the goal isn't, oh, I said I said, fear, fear, and it went away, I win. No, that's not what's important about it going away. What's important about it going away is that that's what things do. And when you realize that, that that's what things do, and there's nothing to be afraid of. Because if something arises and ceases, why were you afraid of it? It's gone now, in the next moment. I mean, that's trivializing it, but that really is it. You really do get to the point where you see everything arises and ceases. That's the expression of, uh, of what we call stream entry, of your first realization of Nibbana, that whatever is of a nature to arise, all of that is of a nature to cease. That's it. When you realize that, then you're like, what is there to be afraid of? Until we've crossed
2: the hour, there are still quite a few more questions in the top tier. Do you have time Mm -hmm. to
0: answer more? All right, if they're in the top tier.
2: All right. Thank you. How does one go about mindfully discerning delusions from one seeing everything in an empty perspective.
0: I don't know how to parse that question. I mean it's it, it just a weird phraseology. I would I would recommend you to read our booklet. I assume that what you're asking about is how to become mindful and and become free from suffering because like questions like this are are too specific. The question you should be asking is, how can I cultivate mindfulness to be free from delusion and free from suffering? Read our booklet, do the at-home meditation course, try and do an intensive course. Those are the three steps to get started on an answer to the question you should be asking, which I'm not sure is the question you are answering, asking.
2: I've been noting for a long time and I've noticed that in sexual practices early on a feeling of passion with pleasure would arise, but after noting there is nothing intrinsically pleasurable about the act and the feeling that arises. Sometimes the feeling no longer arises and it seems as if sexual activity is odd and futile, and I wonder if it's possible to partake in the act without the feeling. Is this correct perspective, or am I reading too much into it?
0: no that sounds accurate it's remarkable how your desire disappears when you see things clearly desire requires delusion it requires darkness it requires ignorance it requires your mind to be in a state of 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 muddledness of lack of clarity without that cloud it's impossible to have desire it's impossible to have aversion quite remarkable how it's just gone like when you shine a bright light in, the darkness disappears.
2: How do I really remember something when studying, if only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking
0: runs in my mind? I mean, this isn't Tier 1, is it? This is more of a, a curiosity question. I mean, the reality is you do remember things. so. I mean there are explanations about how memory works but yeah, it's not really that important you do remember things right so what's the problem how is this how is an answer to this question going to uh, going to help your meditation practice unless i'm misunderstanding something here
2: as a beginning meditator what guideposts should one look for to help with progressing in their meditation?
0: Well, the, the the, um, law, the what's the word? The classic response to what to look for, not just as a beginner meditator, but for any meditator, is whether your greed, your anger, and your delusion are decreasing. It's not a very satisfying answer in some ways, uh, I mean, it's because it's just too simple, right? But it is the most important one. So, and and I think you can look at that. You can, um, you can verify for yourself that you're less angry, that you're less greedy, and that you're less deluded. That you have a better outlook on life, right? Less delusion, because there's nothing else really. There's nothing else that's important, and anything else will be deceptive. Can be deceptive. What guideposts? Sorry, maybe that's not even what you're asking. What guideposts to help with progressing? Well, you don't look for guideposts to progress, you do the work. So I, I maybe misunderstood what you're asking. Don't look for guideposts to help you progress. Um there's nothing that will guide you like that. All you have to do is keep training in clarity and mindfulness. And it's like digging, the Buddha described once like this guy who digs into a uh, an ant hill, and he keeps pulling stuff out of the ant hill. Weird things, like he finds a toad in the ant hill or something, um, and he finds an iron bar or something. And they're all um, they're all analogies for something, metaphors for something else. But uh, it's kind of an apt analogy of someone digging. You're just digging, and you keep finding new things. So just keep digging. Uh, right, so you those aren't and they aren't signposts. They're they're signs that no, they're not even signs. They're uh, realizations and they're challenges which force growth. Right, being challenged, being pulled out of your comfort zone uh, that that will enlighten you as you dig. But all you have to do is keep digging, and you'll see everything.
2: Thank you, Bunte, for taking the extra time. Those are all the questions we're prepared to ask.
0: Okay, thank you all. Every week, such a surprise, we keep getting good questions consistently, uh, important questions. Thank you all for taking the time to try to uh, gain some better appreciation of the Buddha's teaching. I hope it's been helpful. I hope the answers have given you some Uh, clarity and insight and then they weren't just um, they didn't just leave you more confused than before Uh, if you have more follow-up questions or further questions please do come back this is again this is your dhamma talk you tell me what to talk about as long as it's about something important to you something that really you need to hear something that benefits you in your life then i'm happy to answer So, and thank you, uh, Chris and Edit and Jim for your help. May everyone who is involved find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.